Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends. I'm on the phone today with Louis Herman, a professor of political science at the University of Hawaii, West Oahu. He was born in the Orthodox Jewish community in apartheid South Africa. He was educated in England, studied medicine at Cambridge University, and then moved to Israel to live on a kibbutz. After a life-changing wartime experience as an Israeli paratrooper, he turned to political philosophy, and he lives in Honolulu. I have actually had in my hands, and I have in my hands, his very recently published book, Future Primal. Yes, my friends, future primal. How our wilderness origins show us the way forward. Welcome, Louis. So good to talk to you. Good, good, good. So um, maybe we shall just start with how did the title of Future Primal come to you? Uh, it seemed to deal with the, the two poles which uh, framed the question or series of questions which uh, were at the center of my life for as long as I can remember and that is the defining questions of mythology. Uh, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And uh, the answers seem to require me to go back into the deep past, the deepest past, the deeper back I went to the more illuminating it was the more it cleared up who I am, who we are, where we are, situation that we face, and uh, and the way forward. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Uh, calling the website future primitive, I feel exactly the same way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was also, um, I must admit, I'd seen the title of John Zerzan's book. I thought of calling it future primitive, and and didn't want. Um, the same title, but I've been inspired by that juxtaposition of opposites. Yes, yes. It seems as if uh, there's something fundamentally paradoxical or split about human consciousness, and that the way to make sense is is to balance the opposites in our in our way of thinking, the the great opposites, and and future and primitive or future and primal seem to be you know, fundamental poles in tension that could generate. And uh, that's what you say in your book, that uh, the way out of uh, what I would call the materialistic catastrophe is through the understanding and the examining of opposites. Exactly. Exactly. It was... uh, uh, 
iconized by uh, René Descartes, the 17th century French philosopher, in his separation between outer and inner, res cogitans and res extensa, and his uh, exhortation to us to just focus on the material on what could be measured, and a few self-evident principles of mathematics and logic, and um, that set up a great divide between inner and outer, and all the other absolute dichotomies that have really limited Western thinking and the manifestation of our, of our being in the world, all our politics, our institutions, our science, the focus on the outer, outside, mm-hmm. the external. Uh, Louis, you started your life in Africa, and I think it would be useful if you described a little bit of your personal story and how these opposites fit in your story. Uh, in many ways, I was very privileged. I was born, uh, as you said in your introduction, into uh, a Jewish family, an Orthodox Jewish community identified very strongly. Uh, but legally, technically, we were white, and so we enjoyed all the privileges that were outlined by apartheid South Africa. And yet we had very close contact with Africans. I was really, in a way, brought up by African women. You know, they're my mm-hmm. caretakers. They worked for the family or, you know, middle-class, reasonable, or most white families had uh, had African maids and servants and cooks and garden boys, as we called them. And um, so at a very young age, I had a lot of very close, intimate contact with black culture. And that had a profound effect on me. I didn't realize how much, but, you know, they're clearly part of the family. They lived on the premises, loved their music, their language, their food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, I was confronted with the cruelties of apartheid. And that was uh, uh, sort of a, a rupture in my early world. It was like a split, a chasm. Uh, was confronted with starving kids coming to the back door, begging for food. Um, I was uh, you know, witness to all sorts of abuse, indignities, cruelties in public, uh, watching police officers uh, intimidate and harass uh, blacks. Uh, my father worked for, uh, at, at various points, my father was a doctor and worked as district surgeon and uh, had contact with a lot of Africans who were in prison for infringement of the past laws, who were in white areas without the appropriate documents, mm-hmm. heard his stories. Uh, but at the same time, I was also exposed to the most stunning wilderness, uh, beautiful beaches, miles of deserted beaches. Mm. Uh, as a kid, I explored shelters uh, that had housed some of the earliest humans on that coastline. Uh, coastline still incredibly rich, one of the richest fisheries in the world and one of the richest biomes in the world. And uh, this enormously impressed me with the beauty and magnificence of the natural world. Uh, so, you know, they were really the opposites of the purity and beauty and joy and freedom of being in wilderness, of being in nature, the beach, the bush. I grew up in Port Elizabeth, mm-hmm. a medium-sized coastal town on the southeast corner of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, and then um, the the suffering and um, the fear and the violence of civilization or social life. And I always encountered this at school. Um, you know, the, the bullying, the the boring classes, brutal teachers, uh, and um, mm-hmm. you know, this impelled me. I also I also knew about the Holocaust. You know, as a Jew, the Holocaust was an event in recent memory, and this was uh, powerful. 
country that uh, had actually been uh, an environment which had educated the Prime Minister of South Africa at the time, Edward Pavut, had studied in Nazi Germany and developed his racial theories wow. in, in Germany. And so uh, I grew up questioning authority, questioning society at a profound level. Uh, and I couldn't really talk very much about it as a child, but I remember it impressing me very deeply. And then uh, I was very fortunate at the age of 13. We, just before my 13th birthday, my parents decided to leave South Africa in part because of apartheid, but also because my father wanted to specialize further in medicine. And we went to England. And that is really uh, a, an escape from Plato's cave mm-hmm. you know, into another reality. Liberal, socialist England gave me an opposite perspective on politics in South Africa, a view from outside the boundary. Let me ask you a question. Um, a lot of um, children's compassion is extinguished in childhood by witnessing abuse and cruelty. How is it that you think uh, your compassion was either intact or restored, which is evident in your book and your work? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, my first few years were very good. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was well-loved, I was well-cared for, you know, in the formative years until the age of five seemed to be most critical for a young child developing psychology. And I had uh, many loving relationships, as I mentioned, you know, my relationships with my black caretakers. Uh, they regarded me, they treated me as, as their own son. And then later on, as I grew older, a playmate. So, uh, you know, there are very many positive memories. In a way, Port Elizabeth at the time was uh, a bit of an oasis uh, for kids in my situation, surrounded by natural beauty, long summer holidays we spent outside at the beach, big yards, uh, and I was imprinted with, with the beauty of all the magnificence of the world. And, yes, that's... Uh, many ecstatic memories. Well, that's it. You have this uh, phrase in your book, uh, wilderness is the closest face to the mystery of creation. And so... It's your, uh, it's your familiarity with the the beauty of nature that imprinted you, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. The world was just a magnificent place. I mean, it's it's difficult to you know fully fully describe the power of Southern African wilderness. But when you're there, you really feel that uh, this is a kind of Garden of Eden. It's it's so rich, it's so fascinating. I mean, the Feinbos Kingdom, this uh, fine bush that uh, covers the coastline, south, southwestern, southeastern coastline of South Africa, has about 8,600 flowering species, of which 5,800 are endemic. I mean, that's just an extraordinary diversity of, mm-hmm. of living species and flowering plants. You know, if you look at England, we have uh, maybe 1,500 species in the entire United Kingdom in an area three times as large as the, the coastal bush kingdom of South Africa, and only 20 of those are endemic. Wow. So, uh, you know, just magnificent. And then you've got all the megafauna, the charismatic megafauna, the, 
zoologists like to call it, you know, the big, the great, big, charming animals of Africa. Lion, elephant, rhino, hippo, coming right down to the ocean. And remains, they're they're little pockets of wilderness all along that coastline where you can get uh, a sense of what it must have been like 200 years ago. And those are very, very strong memories for me. Yes, yes. So they, uh, they, they, these memories are a home for the economist. They are indeed. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as you thinking in what way? Psychic, a psychic home for the economist. Indeed, and the political philosopher. Yes, exactly. You know, you, you, I mean, the political you know. philosopher for sure. So, uh, shall we talk a little bit about your experience with the sun? Of sure. the Kalahari, who say, if you don't dance, you die. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Uh, where would you like me to go with that? The, the dance is, uh, is the central religious communal ritual of, uh, of the group. It's the most important activity they do. Yes, yeah, so your connection, your connection, what, you, what you've learned and are learning from them, and, uh, yeah. Uh, one bush, I love the quote from Tuele, one of the, the bushmen that uh, I didn't meet, but uh, the anthropologist met who described the dance is a favorite thing for bushmen to do. We dance when we're happy, we dance when we're sad. When we get ready to hunt, we dance because it helps us find the animal, and then after we kill and bring home the animal. We dance again. We dance when we feel sick. It helps us take the sickness away. It keeps us well. It's the most important aspect of our lives. It's our prayer, our medicine, our teaching, our way of having fun. Everything we do is related to that dance. But what happens in the dance is uh, it's a sort of sonic-driven shamanic trance. And uh, the whole community is involved, but not everybody goes into deep trance. And the trance experience is is uh, one version of a shamanic state of consciousness where the, the person who enters the trance goes into the dream time. And the dream time seems to be that deep layer of the psyche that is buried by our socialization, by the ego structures of consciousness that we need in order to function in everyday life. Even the Bushmen. This is the most fascinating thing to me. Even the Bushmen have these ego structures of consciousness that allow them to make the, the separations in the world which allow them to function, to hunt. You know, the buck is not mm-hmm. the same as the hunter. There's a difference. You know, the arrow is aimed at the buck. The arrow hits the buck. There are distinctions there which allow the hunter to hunt. But in trance, these boundaries are transcended. They're crossed. And you can feel that original unity out of which human consciousness emerges. You know, we know the story of evolution. The Bushmen, fascinatingly enough, had their own story of the emergence of consciousness, uh-huh. which is captured in mythology. And that's this transition from what they call the early times to the present times. And uh, in the trance experience, they go back into the early times. They cross the boundary. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's really a complex uh, a, a complex of terms that describes this reality. It's at one of the same time the deep past, but it's also a layer in the present, very much like the Australian Aborigines described their dream time. 
and uh, it opens up. We can imagine that it's just opening up the field of consciousness to a larger reality. Right. And we experience this in many, many ways, meditation, through uh, yes. fasting, through wilderness immersion, and of course through psychedelics. You yes. can have a very, very powerful experience of this, most directly. It's really the surefire, fast-track way yeah. in time. Exactly, and, and other healing plants of the earth. I, I, indeed, I, indeed, yeah. yes, the sacred plants that have been used traditionally for thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years. So you have, a, you say, science uh, could contradict direct experience in those first chapters about what... Uh, what has happened? What has happened to the uh, the everyday use of consciousness? Science could contradict direct experience. Right. Do you see us being able, as a as a as a species, to come into more direct experience with ourselves? Nice question. Yeah, I think I think the the challenge for us now, the scientific, you know, with with this incredible legacy of modern science, is to weave the two together. The truth, <clears throat> excuse me, the truth of direct experience uh, with the truths of of modern science, of scientific cosmology, that we really get through this incredible accumulation of detailed observation and mathematical extrapolation that allows us to, say, point a telescope to the sky and look at the radiation coming from the most distant galaxies and observe the redshift and then extrapolate mathematically and, say, realize the, the reality of the fact that all the, the galaxies, the superclusters of galaxies, are racing away from each other. And if we extrapolate back over time, we forced to come to the conclusion that at one point all these galaxies emerged out of this immense, unfathomably violent explosion that we call the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. now, now that is, you know, in a way, a contradiction of direct experience. The universe seems to be a place where a lot of things happen and the universe is immense and unchanging. Um, now, we've got to try and connect that to how we experience the universe. In trance, you can have that sort of deep experience of everything emerging out of an original primordial unity, and you can experience it directly as a direct emotional revelation. Yes. And, and so, you know, very often the mathematicians who are measuring the redshift in the galactic clusters that are racing away from each other uh, are not allowing themselves to pay attention to their own direct experience because the scientific method, by definition, focuses on what's objective. In other words, what you don't feel emotionally and subjectively. And so there's a methodological blinder, I call it, to inspecting your own experience. You know, what am I feeling as I come, as I think about the Big Bang, as I think about these galaxies racing away from each other? And that is a question that is not asked in science. And what I'm suggesting with the idea of the primal truth quest and it's not a totally original idea. I think it's primal. I think it's there already in the Bushman, is to bring the outer and the inner, the inner world of direct experience, how we feel, what our emotions are, what our passions are, with the realities that we've been forced to confront through our objective science. 
So it's really a healing of uh, a synthesis of, of science and the wisdom tradition, science and philosophy, science and literature, science mm-hmm. and poetry. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I want to say to you, Louis Herman, what do you feel when you experience the Big Bang within yourself and see? <laughs> no, really, really. I feel awestruck. Uh, I feel the opposite. I feel incredible humility. And yet I feel the opposite. I feel as if I am an an intimate part of this immense unfolding because I know that is the reality as well. And it helps explain my own most intimate feelings about my life because, you know, if you're a philosopher, if you're thinking about your life, if you're asking the questions that I asked, by virtue of my birth, by virtue of growing up as a Jew in apartheid South Africa and this Garden of Eden, uh, you realize that your life is a journey, that what I knew as a five-year-old, I had intuitions, I had powerful experiences, I had no concepts, I had no science. And then what I knew as a you know, 15-year-old was radically different as a young school kid in England. And then what I finally discovered as a 55-year-old uh, was a much larger vision, which incorporated in many ways or rediscovered what I knew as a five-year-old. My own life is a journey. Every human life is a journey. Every human life is an event unfolding. And, of course, we realize that we part of a series of larger events. Our life's part of the event of our family, and our family is an event, the appearance of our family and tribal structures, an event in the rise of civilization, which is an event in the rise of the human species, which emerges out of an evolving biosphere on an evolving Earth in an evolving cosmos. So to me, these if you can follow that progression, these, these various uh, bigger and bigger pictures, larger and larger contexts, are all bigger and bigger stories of an unfolding from a single event. So it helps me. I just love the Big Bang. Because it is, in a way, the ultimate context of meaning for all these smaller stories. And it also confronts me with ultimate mystery. Because I realize that our consciousness, in the form, my consciousness, in the form that I have it now, is an ongoing process. It's not the end of the story. I haven't grasped the ultimate beginning, and I, can, I never can. Nor can I grasp the ultimate end. Uh, because my life will extinguish before the ultimate end, as indeed will our planet. You know, we know the sun has a history. So really what I'm saying is that we're confronted with ultimate mystery, uh, mind-dissolving mystery. The primate mind just just shatters in the face of this sort of mystery. And then I invoke Einstein, who said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is mystery. It's the source of all art and science. And I would add to that, it should be the source of our politics, of our way of living. This should guide us in life. Mm. And this is the insight of all the great mystics and the shamans. Mm-hmm. It's a single insight which unites them all. So, like on the personal level, speaking for myself, I was uh, education, I was told some nasty little stories about 
who I am. And uh, I had to absolutely emerge and change out of these stories. So do you think that um, it will be possible to change the fundamental stories that people tell themselves that keep us uh, unfree and disconnected from nature? I think it's happening, uh, and and that's really what I see my work. You know, in a way, I'm just part of this long tradition of storytellers. Yes, I'm just weaving in, you know, the new experience that comes from my generation and and all the great philosophers and thinkers that have added to the stories that we've inherited, and uh, you know, it's there, it's emerging, but. You know, the dominant story that is reproduced in our educational system, and I'm talking about from elementary school you know, to you know, the highest forms of, of academia, is uh, an incredibly small and constricting story, which came out of the 18th century and is really the foundation of our political and economic institutions. Right. So there's a power structure that has a vested interest in perpetuating the story. And often it's just taken for granted. It's not even recognized for what it is, which is the story of what it means to be human on planet Earth that comes out of the 18th century, comes out of a bunch of 18th century philosophers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very well known, sort of iconic philosophers that uh, created foundations of industrial capitalism, representational democracy, made a huge contribution, of course liberating us from the corruption and the constraints of feudalism. But it's a very narrow story. You know, if you actually examine the pieces of it, what John Locke said about nature, what Hobbes said about human nature, and we've sort of inherited it and internalized it. And I can go into details if you want me to go in that direction uh, on the, you know, the dominant story. But I think learning the dominant story and putting it in context, seeing how it was a story that worked, between the 16th century and well, all the way up to the present, but particularly embodied in the Constitution of the United States and the thinking of the Founding Fathers, it's probably its highest political expression. Uh, it was very liberating in that context, but it's completely inappropriate for the world we're living in now and really needs to be taken on to a higher level. In a way, it's the same project of liberating the individual consciousness and the species, mm-hmm. but taken on to a more sophisticated level that includes the realities that we've discovered in part you know, through scientific cosmology, through transpersonal psychology, uh, studies of comparative uh, shamanism, comparative religion, etc., etc., yeah. yeah. on and on. Do you perceive... Um I must say, like I do, that if if we look at the known history, I believe that human consciousness and awareness is definitely expanding. No question. No question about that. In some areas, at some levels, and in other areas, it's constricting. Uh, If you look at the rise of fundamentalism in our age, it's really a regression. So I think we've got opposites happening at the same time, which is fascinating because it's a sign of transformation. So transformation of consciousness uh, will prevail? Good question. You know, is this automatic? Is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that I 
That is, is that the question you're asking? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I I do see it as a continuum, and so I was wondering. Yeah. yeah, so I was wondering. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what you think about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes to any of these fundamental questions, I always want to say yes and no. Mm-hmm. And, yes uh, and I think no. it has to do with the uniqueness of of our situation of of the level of consciousness that we've attained. And when I say we, I'm talking about this trajectory of expanding consciousness that I think uh, your work is clearly contributing to. And, you know, the work of, of people like Timothy Leary and, mm-hmm. and the researchers in comparative religion and transpersonal psychology and so on. Um, and that is a trajectory of, of expanded awareness. But what it also confronts us with is this extraordinary conundrum, extraordinary conundrum which really defines the human condition, and that is the conundrum of free choice. Because free choice only really emerges at a certain level of consciousness uh, and grasping that just what the significance of free choice is uh, requires a high level of self-reflection. Now, a lot of people live lives feeling as if they're compelled to do what they do and as if they don't really have choice, and they're just the suffering victims of forces out of their control, and that the species history is also you know, out of our hands, and who are we to you know, meddle with this? Um, whereas, you know, my understanding is that this trajectory that you've described, that you believe in, that I believe in, of expanding mm-hmm. consciousness and complexity in the evolutionary process, mm-hmm. has now reached a point where we really do have free choice, and that the future of the evolution of consciousness on planet Earth really does depend on us. And if it is real freedom, it means we can screw up. And as a civilization, we are clearly screwing up right now. Mm. You know, we we have a uh, just very recently, scientists have uh, defined our uh, situation as entering into a new geological epoch, that of the Anthropocene, which is marking the end of the Holocene, that 10,000-year period in which agricultural civilization flourished and we had relative climate stability. And that is now ending as a result of uh, creation of a civilization based on burning fossil fuels, uh, harnessed by 7 billion human beings committed to a consumerist way of life. That is exterminating living species at a rate that we haven't seen on planet Earth since that great asteroid collided with Earth 65, 66 million years ago and destroyed most of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. So doesn't that mean that choice is now a factor that it's not inevitable? That is the question I ask myself. You know, we are... We have chosen to follow a destructive course. And turning away from this course requires an act of choice. And if it's real choice, there needs to be a real possibility of screwing up. In a way, we have screwed up already because of the extinction rate. We're destroying that beauty that I was so imprinted with as a kid in South Africa. Uh-huh. So, so let me just turn it back to you at this point. I don't want to go on and on, yeah. but... Well, it goes back to storytelling, and uh, for for me, it goes back to storytelling, and that quote you have at the beginning of the book, where, and I paraphrase, 
the Bushman, the son says, we must hear the stories and, and we must hear the stories in the wind. Uh, so it might be a matter of, um, of telling a, a different story. You, for instance, one of the terms you have is tower of politics, uh, telling a different story fast enough because of the possibilities that we have now to communicate with each other. Right, right. So your work to me is very important because uh, it's really the story we tell ourselves about hierarchy, about our hierarchy that we need to change, about the hierarchy of things. Right. So can the storytellers tell other stories uh, quickly enough and deeply enough, right. like right. yourself. Right. Certainly. Yeah, and, and I think we, we in that situation where we're on the cusp of it, you know, as, as you say, we've got this incredible network of global communication now, and, and what we need is, is the right vision. It's also a vision. It's a comprehensive it's a big picture as well as a story um, where we can see this whole, you know, seed of the earth growing and evolving, and then we can see that we are part of that, and our seeing is also part of that. That's waking up to itself, and mm-hmm. and that I think is a story that can self-replicate like a meme, very, very, very quickly. You know, especially because we've got this technology, and it doesn't have to be in the minds of every single human being on planet Earth. You know, just a critical mass of the power holders would be sufficient. Because I think it is a story that's profoundly enlivening and thrilling and beautiful. I mean, it fills me with ecstasy. It's an ecstatic vision. Just telling the story can lead to an experience which is almost like uh, shamanic ecstasy. That's right. And I was wondering, I wanted to ask you, if you could speak to us about your experience of ecstasy and joy. Uh, (laughs) Yes. You know, it's the ecstasy and terror of, of psychedelic experiences. Um, you know, as part of it, yes. uh, there's a primal ecstasy that I referred to uh, coming out of childhood when you're living in this enchanted world and the boundaries between you and the world haven't really been created. And then there's that painful process of creating those boundaries. I would feel ecstatic emotion on, on the beaches in South Africa. I just lose myself in the, the ocean of beauty and uh, mystery and magic of the animals, being confronted with a fully grown bull elephant on the other side of a fence in a mm-hmm. wilderness area outside Port Elizabeth, trumpeting uh, and wanting to charge me and suddenly feeling recognized by this creature that had been wandering the plains of Africa for the last 700,000 years. But I don't know, you want me to be more specific about specific experiences? Well, I I just think it's a story that's uh, very important to propagate, and right. and and within that story is, uh, I want to ask you how can we? It's the it's my big question. How can we reconnect with the essence of the earth so that we can we can continue as a species? Right, indeed. You know, it's, it's this, um, you know, the 
primal ecstasies in relationship to all of this, crossing the boundary out of civilization. I have this model of, you know, this mandala model of what I call the primal truth quest. Yes. And the two poles are, you know, the, the, the sort of self-reflective wake-up where we ask ourselves, you know, who we are, and then surrounding us is this recognition that we come out of wilderness. And this merger back with wilderness is, to me, the primal ecstatic experience. And I think psychedelic experiences give us a version of that uh, in that they dissolve the ego, which is the, the structure of our socialization. And that dissolving, when the boundaries break down, you, know, you can almost imagine that as a, as a chemical process in the brain where those structures are deactivated. So the ego, in a way, is still there, but it's just the whole field surrounding the ego is amplified and stimulated. So we suddenly become conscious of you know, bathing in this incredible world of information and experience. Um, it's both terrifying and ecstatic. It tends to be terrifying the first time you do it if you're not used to an ego-dissolving experience because the ego is what keeps us alive and defends us and protects us. Uh, but then as we merge, that is, you know, that is basically the structure. That's where the word comes from, ecstasis, out of, out of body. Mm-hmm. out of ego and that's an expansion it's like when you climb a mountain and you are spending hours you know sweating sweating and laboring up the mountain you're in a wilderness environment your the little voice in your head calms down you process thoughts anxieties worries you get to the summit and suddenly you stand up there and look around and see this incredible exquisite earth that surrounds us uh it's an, uh, an ecstatic experience Yes. And you feel yourself part of this. So, you know, we need to tell stories that help individuals in their context, in their situations, experience this. So, you know, there, 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 there are any number of ways. I don't know. I could go on. Yeah. I want to jump uh, to um, ask you, I see corporations as the ultimate abstraction, I mean, I I see that we have um, uh, in some way uh, gone deeper and deeper into abstraction, if if one can go deep into abstraction. (laughs) Right. Uh, So what what could you say about corporations being the ultimate abstraction? Uh, Abstraction. Yeah. Yeah. And... Using uh, the un- idea that the corporation is an individual yes, and uh, yes. is given all the powers of an individual that has yeah. none of the moral responsibilities of an individual. An individual. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's an institution that embodies the pathology of our civilization, which is this idea that uh, we don't have to take responsibility, moral responsibility for the whole. We don't have to try and find our place in the whole. And, uh, you know, the corporation was, was constructed as, a, as an instrument for individuals, shareholders, being able to maximize their profit, their self-interest, without, without taking responsibility for the consequences with minimum risk, limited liability corporation. And so it's really an institution that allows us to behave psychopathically. Uh-huh. You know, a psychopath is defined as, as an individual who can't experience guilt, feels no moral responsibilities, feels no obligation to follow laws and norms, is really incapable of relating to others in the world as, as if he or she were part of that, that reality. 
So, you know, I th- think we need to, to, to tell the story of the corporation and how it came to be this way and then put the corporation in the big picture. And it immediately becomes clear that this is, you know, an incredibly destructive institution unless it's guided by, by concern for the good of the whole. And there are examples of corporations and individual CEOs of corporations of independent privately held corporations that are waking up to this and those stories need to be told. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, so I, that, does that get y- to your yes, question? Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and uh, to this I'd like to say that before we started this conversation I I proposed to you and now it's clearer to me that uh, uh, we might um, do a series of these talks and uh, take your book uh, section by section so that um, you uh, can um, tell your thoughts about the story of then and now. Uh, so I'd really like... I like to do that, and uh, somewhat that's why I've been kind of uh, hovering over the over the deep surface. So, right. so that nice. yeah, nice. So that nice. yeah, we could get to know each other a, a little bit, um, and uh, and just sort of um, examine the uh, the. Uh, the different flow. Right, right. Yeah. And of course, like, like any conversation, um, it, it becomes coherent and is deepened to the degree that I know a little bit about where you're coming from. And of course, I know a little bit about your story, um, but also have a sense of, of where those who might be listening to us are coming from. Right. And this really is the primal model. In any story, any big picture, any cosmology is always told within a community and is told by an individual or individuals taking turns uh, from an individual's perspective. You know, my big picture is never going to be exactly your big picture. But the more we go, the more we go back and forth, the more we can have a genuine conversation, uh, the more we can share a single story which can help us move together. Uh, You and I, uh, the audience, uh, our communities, species ultimately into uh, a more human way of living uh, and loving on this incredible evolving earth and an evolving cosmos. I love it. I love it. And it's because I'm extremely enthusiastic about the way you uh, tell this story of uh, where we're coming from and, and where we are now and how we can go into the future. That uh, beautiful, yeah, yeah. So um, I think for now we uh, will will leave it where it is, and um, we'll find out more about each other, and uh, we'll um, we'll go into specifics the next time we we have a conversation. And, a lot to tell, <laughs> a lot to share. Good and. Uh, is there something you'd like to say in closing, Louis? Uh, I think that uh, you know we're reaching the point where, where it would be good to to reflect on our conversation and uh, and see what pieces uh, you know 
you picking up on, um, an audience is picking up on, and where we should go with this. Because the goal really is uh, to connect, to weave a new culture, to create a new culture. And in order to do that, you need individuals communicating with a concern for the the biggest possible picture, putting all these pieces together. And that is an immense undertaking and an endless undertaking. You know, so the more the more feedback we can get, the more we can reflect on where we've what we've covered in our conversation, the more we'll be able to get to those critical questions, which will help uh, individuals move forward in their own lives, in their own unique contexts. Yeah. Great. All right, then. Uh, thank you so much, and I'll be in touch with you so that we can um, uh, make a time for another conversation. Beautiful. Thank you, Joanna. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Such a thrill for me to be talking about these things to you. Me too, very much.